Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Outside of Christ, there's no freedom. The kings of the earth in the second psalm speak for all of us before we knew Christ. We say of the Lord and of his anointed, let's burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Everyone, including us in a past life, everyone who avoids Jesus is really looking for freedom. Whether you're religious, not religious, it makes no difference. If you are avoiding a full submission to Jesus Christ, it's because you want freedom. It's because you want to do this, and Jesus says you can't do this and be my disciple. And so we hold on to our lives. We're seeking control of ourselves. Jesus says, bend the knee, take my yoke upon you, call me Lord, which means master. When we refuse, we're seeking freedom from him and from his rules and from the way of life he's calling us to live. And I'm not just talking about people who are out there in the world living clear, tax collector, prostitute type lives, but this applies equally to those of us who are in the church, many of us who've even grown up in the church. I can say this with some degree of experience because it was the experience of half of my life to grow up in the church, to say that Jesus can have my Sunday mornings, he can even have my tithe. He cannot have control of my life. I do not want to surrender that kind of freedom to him. Everyone inside the church and everyone outside the church who does not submit to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is looking for freedom, but this is the irony of it. There is no freedom anywhere except in Christ. Peter writes about those who are leaders among the lost like this. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. It's not freedom to be outside of Christ. And Peter was only echoing Jesus' own words. You may remember the shocking moment when Jesus told the Jewish people that he could offer them freedom. And their response was, we are offspring of Abraham, meaning we're Jews, we're the good guys, and have never been enslaved to anyone. History begged to differ, but that was their claim. How is it that you say you'll become free? They thought they were free. They were outside of Christ. There he was. They didn't want to receive him. We're already free. We don't need the freedom that you offer us. And isn't that how we feel outside of Christ? I'm not coming to you because I want freedom. <laughs> but as Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is not free to sin however they want. They are a slave to sin. The option set before all mankind might feel like you can either go out in an absolute autonomous freedom and do whatever you want, or you can become religious and trust in Jesus and have a bunch of rules and be a slave. Those are not the options set before mankind. It is exactly the reverse. Jesus says, you can go out apart from me 
and be religious or irreligious doesn't matter, you will never find freedom. You will be a slave to your sins. They will rule you and they're cruel masters. Or as he said, if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. Not an illusion of freedom that the world gives, but free indeed. Outside of Christ, there is no freedom in this world. Paul's whole letter to the Galatians that we've been studying is about freedom. Actually, more specifically, it is about a group of people who had trusted in Christ, but then were being tempted by Judaizer false teachers to turn away from faith in Christ and the freedom that provides back to enslavement, to earthy principles, rules, and regulations, specifically the law of Moses for them. That's what the whole letter's been about, and Paul has been saying, you are already free. Don't be enslaved again once you've been set free. Hold to the liberty that you have, because if you're a Christian, you're free, and you are free indeed. Let's look at this. He's going to continue. He just talked about in the past few verses how the Jewish people were slaves to the law, but were set free in Christ. But now we find something interesting as he turns his attention to us non-Jews, to the Gentiles. So look at Galatians 4. Let's begin here in verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, because this matters a whole lot more, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless stoicheia elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. At the heart of this passage is that Greek word stoicheia, which is translated elementary principles. We've already encountered it just last week, because if you look up in verse 3, when Paul was talking about himself and his fellow Jewish Christians, he said that in the past they were, quote, enslaved to the stoicheia elementary principles, the earthy stuff of the world. The Jewish people, of course, were under the stoicheia of the law of Moses. The earthy regulations about do not taste, do not handle, do not touch, eat this food, not that food, wear this clothing, not that clothing, don't touch this, you'll be unclean. There were external earthy principles, granted, God-given, but that's what it was. And he calls it stoicheia, and he says, before Christ came, we Jews were enslaved to those stoicheia. And Christ has come to set us free, not only from our sin, but from those external rules, regulations, earthy things. But what he's doing today in our passage is he's extending the idea of stoicheia. Enslavement to stoicheia is not just a Jewish thing. Because in this passage, he turns the attention to you, not we, Jewish Christians, but you Gentile Christians who followed those who were not gods, meaning you followed idols and false gods. 
you're Gentiles. So he's saying that not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles outside of Christ are not free, but are enslaved here to the stoicheia. And that's true of you if you're outside of Christ. This passage applies directly in that way. You are still enslaved to these stoicheia, as he calls them. So what we want to do today in observing this passage is to follow two things that Paul says about the stoicheia. You may wonder, what even is that? It's all Greek to you. It literally is Greek. What is the stoicheia? We began talking about it last week, but we're also going to talk about it in this passage. There are two things Paul says about it in this passage that are vital to understand. One, shockingly, is that the stoicheia and enslavement to the stoicheia is shared among religious or Jewish people outside of Christ and irreligious or non-Jewish Gentiles outside of Christ, meaning it's shared by everyone in the world. If you are outside of Christ, you share this trait. You're enslaved to the stoicheia. So shared. The second point he's going to make as a warning to not turn back to those things is that the stoicheia are worthless. So let's look at this shared and worthless. Shared first. This is in verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. And like I said here, there is a change of pronoun, and so there is a change of audience. He was talking in verse 3 with the stoicheia there about we, Jewish Christians, under the law of Moses. But in verse 8, he changes, if you notice, formerly when you. And who's the you here? Well, he defines it as you who, quote, were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. That is the very definition of a Gentile as far as the Jews were concerned. They followed no gods instead of the one true God. They worshiped those that by nature are not gods, false so-called gods represented by idols. That's what a Gentile was to the Jewish people. But this is the surprising thing in this passage. Paul, of course, has been urging the Jewish Christians, the we, you came out of the law of Moses and its stoicheia, its earthly principles of circumcision, dietary restriction. You came out of that in trusting in Christ. You can still observe that, it's fine, but it's not required for salvation. You've come out of that, and he's saying the Judaizers want you to go back into that. Don't do it. But in our passage, he turns his attention to Gentiles who were never under any of that. They were never under the law of Moses. They're Gentiles. They were pagans. They were worshiping a pantheon. They were worshiping false gods. And they've come out of that to trust in Christ. And notice he's speaking to them when he says, you don't turn back to that. You, Gentiles, you don't turn back to the stoicheia that he already said was in the law of Moses. It's clear that the stoicheia has referenced when he's saying don't turn back, he's saying don't turn back, meaning don't follow the Judaizers to put yourself under the law of Moses. You can see that in verse 10. He says, you, Gentiles, because of the influence of the Judaizers, you observe days and months and seasons and years. 
Those are the days, like the Sabbath, that were set apart under the law of Moses for specific behaviors. And the festivals that were on the Jewish calendar. That's the law of Moses. You had to observe those. So these Gentiles who never observed those before because they're pagans come to Christ. Now they're starting to observe something they've never observed before from the law of Moses. And Paul says, if you do that, you're turning back again to something you came out of. You see how that's surprising? They never were there. How can, he be going, how can they be going back to something they never observed in the past? This is the mystery of it. As a part of the law of Moses, there is this stoicheia we talked about last week. Think of this as earthy principles, rules, what you touch, what you taste, what you eat, what you don't eat. These were God-given. These were good under the law. Not bad. They come from God, but they are external. You can see them happening or not happening. It's not heart here. You just see, did you eat the pork or did you not eat the pork? It's one or the other. You can see it. You can touch it. It's very earthy, very physical. The foods, the washings, wash your body, purification, ritual purification, the animal sacrifices. It's not just invisibly in your heart happening. These are things you're actually doing in a very physical way. We saw last week that that is a part of the law of Moses. Now, before these Gentile Christians had come to Christ, Gentiles, not participating in the law of Moses, there is a sense, Paul is saying, in which their life was very similar to the Jews. Think of it this way. If you study ancient history, were the Jewish people the only people with animal sacrifices? You know who else did animal sacrifices in the ancient world? Everybody. To all kinds of false gods. Pretty universal experience. Who else did washings in the ancient world? A whole lot of people. Who else had priests? A whole lot of people. Who else cared about the calendar, the movement of the stars? Who else observed days and festivals on the basis of the calendar? Pretty much everybody. Paul is not saying that the experience of the Jews was the same as the experience of the pagans because the Jews had their law from God. The pagans made it all up. But what he's saying is there is an overlap, and the overlap is the stoicheia. It's earthy physical, tangible stuff. And there is an overlap there so that when Paul speaks to the Gentiles who've come out of whatever their own animal sacrifices, whatever their own rituals, whatever their own calendars, they've come out of all this list of regulations that are totally external. They've trusted in Christ. Their heart is filled with love. And now the Judaizers say, no, no, no. You just had the wrong list of earthy stuff to do. You need to follow different festivals. You had the wrong festivals. You're right as festivals, but you got to do different ones. You need to be circumcised. You got to do these washings, not your washings. And Paul says, if you turn back from simple faith in Christ, then you're going back to the stoicheia, just of a different flavor, but it's still the stoicheia. Verse 9, how can you Gentiles turn back again 
to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. The point is that outside of Christ, whether you are a pagan or a Jew, if you are not in Christ, your past experience is you are enslaved. You Gentiles want to be slaves again by turning to this Jewish form of it. But if you're under the stoicheia, if that's the way you're seeking to be right with God, you are slaves. You are not free. And it doesn't matter if you do it in a good religious way or a bad irreligious way. And the same applies for anyone today. Some of this seems foreign because we're talking about 2,000 years ago, but some of you come from a background that's within the church and you have darkened the doors of the church your whole life. You've been here. You're around true worship. We have the Word of God, the oracles of God. These are true. We are performing true spiritual worship in this place. You've been here your whole life. You can still, in that context, be enslaved to the stoicheia. You, personally. I was that way half my life. You can be there. Or some of you come from a background that's just entirely irreligious. Sunday morning is for pornography. Sunday night is picking up people at bars. You're under the stoicheia. It doesn't matter which route you choose, you understand? There is a way to live your life in a religious context like the Jews, in an irreligious pagan context like the Gentiles. Paul says, here's a, something shared. You're a slave. You are not free. Now, one unique element of the Gentiles' enslavement to the Stoicheia that's worth pointing out because it's in this passage is that the Gentile version of enslavement here included so-called gods represented by idols. And that is a difference, so it's not a complete overlap with the Jews. He says, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Both the Old and the New Testament are clear that any God beside the one true God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Yahweh, presented in the scriptures, is not a God. So this would include Allah, this would include the Hindu pantheon, the Bible clear, clearly teaches that these are simply not gods. They do not exist. They are not real. That's the teaching of the scriptures universally. So if you go to the Old Testament, Jeremiah says, can man make for himself gods? And he answers, such are not gods. He was thinking of crafting an idol, but even the invention of a god out of one's head, he says, such are not gods. Paul agrees in the New Testament, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. The phrase in Hebrew, lo Elohim, not gods, repeats several times in the Old Testament to refer to the gods of the pagans. What they worship are the not gods. They're not gods. They're not really gods. The Bible's also clear, however, speaking of these who are not gods by nature, that although they are not gods, these false made-up gods, demons do stand behind many of the false gods in the world. So, for example, in the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, Moses is lamenting about Israel. He says, quote, they sacrificed to demons 
that were low Elohim, no gods. To gods they had never known. He calls them gods because that's what they are in our passage, so-called. But they're not gods. They are low Elohim. They are not gods. They are not real. But notice, when the pagans sacrificed to the not gods, they sacrificed to demons who stood behind the no gods. Paul echoes this sentiment in the New Testament. He says, what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons. Demons stand behind the false gods of the world. They always have. And shockingly, demons can even act on behalf of these non-existent deities. Now, demons we know are not themselves gods, even if they stand behind the idols and the false gods of the world. They're angels. They're creatures. It's not what gods are. These are creatures, fallen angels, but they can stand behind, receiving the worship and even responding and acting on behalf of the fake, made-up God. You may remember from your Bible reading the shocking moment when the northern and southern tribes joined together when they had broken after the Civil War. In the days of Elisha, they paired together with Edom in order to fight against Moab, and they were winning, and they almost took the king of Moab from his city in captivity, and then we read that the king of Moab, who worships a false god, quote, took his oldest son who was to reign in his place, offered him for a burnt offering on the wall, which sadly, that was common in ancient pagan religion, even human sacrifice. So a human sacrifice to a false god, and then we read this, quote, and there came great wrath against Israel, and they had to retreat. I thought that was a no god that he was sacrificing to, yes, but a demon stood behind that no god and apparently acted in response to the sacrifice. So a demon behind it. So these are the Gentiles. There is a difference between the Jews and Gentiles. Even if something's shared, there's a difference. The Jews were worshiping the true God. The Gentiles were worshiping and enslaved to these no gods with demons behind them. So that is a difference. But what Paul's really emphasizing in our passage is not that difference. He's emphasizing that even though that's the case, there is something more essential that was shared. And it is this enslavement to the stoicheia. Whether you are worshiping the true God or false gods, if you're not in Christ, you are enslaved to the stoicheia, to this earthy ways of thinking, earthy principles, elementary earthy principles. They rule you. That's the first point here in this passage. And now that you can see that the stoicheia is shared by the Jews and the Gentiles, you're ready to hear from Paul the warning of this passage. And it comes to us by a description of these stoicheia that's also shocking. Look here in verse 9. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, which by the way, idols can't do. They don't know you because they're no gods. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless, weak and worthless stoicheia of the world? whose slaves you want to be once more. Not only are the stoicheia shared among the religious irreligious, the Jew and Gentile, but they are worthless. 
This is a point well worth making because up till now, you might have wondered a little bit how this passage could apply to you. Because on the one hand, you're not in the camp of the Jewish we from last week. Probably most of you, if not all of us. We're not in the Jewish we, Gentile, Jewish Christians. Nor exactly do we fall into this next camp because he's saying you worshipped false gods and idols. Many of us have grown up in the church. We have not bowed to statues meant to represent deities invented in the world. So how does this passage apply to us? Let me give you Paul's essential point and you'll see how. Any way of life that does not center in faith in Christ, whether that way of life is religious or irreligious, church-going or not church-going, if it does not center in faith in Christ, you are enslaved to stoicheia that are worthless. They are a waste of your time, but you are enslaved to them. That's what he's saying here. It might help you to think, again, stoicheia, how do we get a grap grapple on these things? Think of earthy things. That's kind of the gist of it. Earthy things. It can be earthy regulations, earthy habits, earthy focus, earthy false gods, earthy Christianity. But it is earthy. It is tangible. It is external. It does not touch the heart. It touches the body only. It's what you do or you do not do that can be measured and weighed and seen and felt. That as a focus of your life, if that is the entire focus of your life, you are enslaved to it. It is your master. Christ came to call us to something beyond that, to faith that does not see, and you cannot see faith, it is invisible, to faith in Christ. In Colossians 2, Paul actually talks about the stoicheia. It's the only other place that we hear about it in the New Testament. And when he refers to the stoicheia in Colossians 2, this is what he says. If with Christ you died to the stoicheia of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to Note, regulations, do not handle, physical, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used. Physical, tangible things, they perish. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This right here is the main reason that Christian cults gain such attraction and get so many followers. Because if you've ever watched a documentary about a Christian cult, as you're sitting there watching and you see the things that cult leaders at times demand of their followers, that they sell everything and give it to the cult leadership, that they do weird, wacky things, wear certain hats, behave in an erratic way, even in some cases give up their own lives, on the outside it seems like, why would anybody ever do that? But you misunderstand how comforting and comfortable the stoicheia of this world are. The entire basis of Christian cults is the stoicheia. Here comes a person out of the world, for example, 
who is used to earthy things, enslaved to the stoicheia as a pagan, used to earthy things. That's their whole focus in life. Money, sex, house, car, that's it. And then they get tired of it, and a cult leader stands up and says, you tired of that? Yes. You feel guilty about that? Yes, I do. I can give you freedom. At that point, he should say, turn to Christ in faith. But a cult leader instead will say, that earthy structure you're living in isn't working for you? I got a different one. It's so nice. We like structure. We like rules. They're comforting in a weird way. Even if the rules are wacky, it's just comforting to be in a system somebody else thought about. So the cult leader says, you come out of that earthy way of living and do this earthy way of living. Don't watch, don't watch any movies. Sell everything that you have and bring the money to us. Come live on our compound. Do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that. There is, from the outside, it seems so odd, but from the inside, and maybe some of you come from a cult in, the back, in your background, there is a real comfort to just finding yourself in a structure, even if it's entirely earthy, but to find yourself in a structure where you know exactly what to do and exactly what not to do. And you can look and measure it. Did I do it? Did I watch a movie? Did I not watch a movie? Did I sell everything and give the money to the cult? Or did I not do that? You can measure that. And there is a real comfort that we as humans like in that. The stoicheia, the earthy stuff. That's why it's such a draw. That's why it was such a draw even here. It was such a draw when the Judaizers said, hey, we've got these external things you can do and you'll be right with God. Clear external structure is such a comfort. So this person who comes out of the world and then comes into the cult, they find something comforting, even something familiar in the way they're now living. That's Paul's point. Out of the stoicheia, into the stoicheia. Paul's voice shatters that comfort in our text because he points at it, the structure, and he says, weak and worthless, weak and worthless, but I find so much comfort in these rules, worthless, worthless. They don't do a thing for you, or like we saw in Colossians, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You not watching movies, you wearing certain kinds of pants will not make you a holy person. It might comfort you, weak, worthless. It doesn't change you. And that's what Jesus is interested in, changing us at the level of the heart. The stoicheia is not at the level of the heart. It's just out here. This is why if you've encountered a cult, when you first come, usually there's a sense of love and joy and peace that draws you in. But once you're in and time passes, you realize that love and joy and peace was just manufactured by the mechanics of the rules. And once you're inside, people don't actually love each other. It's all political. It's all selfish. People get very disillusioned because the heart has not been changed. Now, if I can bring this a little bit closer to home, because not all of us have been involved in cults, the warning is for us as converted Gentiles right here, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? If Paul's essential meaning is faith in Christ has to be the center and nothing else that's earthy can push that out of the center, then I hope you see a million applications that I probably wouldn't even have to go into. 
Look, living in this world, we require earthy stuff. We need structures, don't we? We need methods. The law of Moses had a lot of structure in it. The pagan religions had a bunch of structure. We have structure. If we didn't set a specific time for us to meet right now for fellowship and worship in God's Word, and if we didn't have a specific place with HVAC units that have been kept up, with doors that have been built and put, if we didn't have a building here and the time set and all the details of structures sound in the back, thank you, if we didn't have all this going on, we couldn't fellowship. <laughs> you see how it supports what we're doing here? So we need structure. We need, in a sense, stoicheia, earthy stuff. So this is not an argument against any of that. The danger that Paul is warning against is we have put all this stoicheia in place to support one thing, and it is faith in Christ. That's why we're here. It's faith in Christ. This is the danger that the stoicheia becomes so comforting that it comes to crowd out the faith in Christ that it was put in place to support. That is the human temptation that's always been there, and that is the danger Paul is fighting against. The external stuff taking over the internal. Paul wrote to a young pastor, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Love from faith. Love from faith. That's what we're doing. That's why we're here. That's what our lives are about. To support that, there are earthy things in place. We have small groups. Those are stoicheia. When you meet, where you meet, how you handle the 500 children in your small group now, if you're the Walden group or whoever, how you're going to handle all that, stoicheia, structure, details. How long are you going to study the Bible? Are you going to study a book? Are you going to share Testimony, are you going to share your prayer request? How long are you going to pray for each other? How are you going to pray for each other? Stoicheia, structure, order. You have to have it. If you don't have it, you can't do small group. You can't have that fellowship. So there's nothing wrong with that. Here's the danger. We have that structure in place to support love coming out of faith. The danger is that the structure pushes it out of focus. We do men's ministries here. We do women's ministries here. Sunday morning has structure. Everything needs structure. On an individual level, you probably have some structure to how you do your Bible reading and your prayer. We use the Acts model or something else. We'll have a church prayer night. There will be some structure to it. So stoicheia are not inherently bad. But the danger is if you put them in the middle, Paul says, worthless. You want them to save you? Worthless. You want them to sanctify you? They won't do it. They're too weak. They are worthless by themselves. The only thing they are is a little platform for love coming out of faith to stand on. That's it. But just the way we're wired as people, for all of us, it is a temptation to really like the platform, especially when you get really used to the platform. If you think about church fights, they're always... I don't think that's excessive. They're basically always about the stoicheia every time, pretty much. So somebody builds a building, a church building, for the sake of love coming out of faith in Christ. So you build a building. 
wonderful, so that we can meet and do this. Time goes on, and you really like the building. You like the carpets. May I don't know if you like our carpets. You like the carpets. You like the walls. You like what's going on. You like the chairs. Then somebody says, hey, we should change blank. And then boom, the stoicheia have been affronted. And everything's about the stoicheia. This is what it's about. You can't, you can't take the baptismal and hide it because then you're not properly supporting baptism. And isn't that what we're about as Christians? You can't change the parking lot. You can't do that. Leave it. And we become obsessed with the stoicheia as if that's what it's about. It's not about that. I know we like that. I know it's comforting. Okay? It's comforting. We like to get... I'm one to talk because I don't like new clothes. My poor wife has to deal with that. I'll wear this till it gets frayed because of the comfort of my old clothes that I'm wearing. And that is a human temptation. We like the stoicheia. You like how your small group is structured. You like how this is happening or that is happening. You like the time we meet or how we meet. And someone comes in and says, well, maybe love from faith would be better supported now with this. That's rough. That's rough. For me, for you, for everybody. That is exactly what happened when Jesus, you remember, came and he said, everybody, it's all about love from faith in me. This is the new wine I'm bringing. That's what it's about. That's even what the law was about. Who didn't like to hear that? The prostitutes? The tax collectors? No, they love to hear that. You love us? We can trust and be saved? Wonderful. You know who didn't like to hear that? The very committed religious Jewish people. Because they love the structure and the comfort of the law. And Jesus said, that whole law was to prepare you for me. And he said, that's okay. We don't need you. We really like the law. We really like the stoicheia. You can keep yourself. We're not that interested. Don't change what we're doing here. That was a whole tension with Jews and Gentiles in the early church. That was, in some sense, the reason they killed Jesus. It was a really bad church fight in the Jewish nation, and they killed Jesus over the stoicheia, where he said, it is a new age, and you're not under the law of Moses. As a church, we need programs. I hope I'm not misunderstood. I mean, in order to love people, you need programs of some sense, or you could do an investigative Bible study. That's a that's a structure for evangelism. So don't get rid of any of that. We're always thinking, how can we structure things well? It's not about that. It is about when we marry the program. It happens to us all. And then we end up not loving people who want to change it because it's a threat. But you go, wait a minute, hold up. The program was just about loving out of faith. And now we're having a church fight over it. It's so bizarre, but it's just how we are. Unfortunately, that's why when Jesus healed the woman who was bent over for so many years, she stands up liberated from the devil and the Jewish religious people say, but it was on a Sabbath. And they try to get him on a technicality and you go, <laughs> or even worse was when Jesus healed the crippled man and said, take up your pallet and go. And everyone's going, what? He just healed. Except the Jewish leaders who went, you carrying a pallet on the Sabbath? <laughs> like, say that again slowly. I'm carrying my pallet. It didn't matter. They cared about the structure, the stoicheia, not the fulfillment of it. I want to give you just one little extra application, if I might, that's on a side note here, but I feel it's very relevant. 
Stoicheia is stuff that's tangible, measurable, you can see it, you can touch it, but it would also include, I do think, for many of us, even emotion. For many of you who are more in tune with your emotions, more strongly emotional, you might say, well, emotions are different. You can't touch them or feel them. You can feel them. You can feel them. And as a Christian, there are many times where your emotions are telling you something the Bible's not telling you. For example, you're guilty. God does not approve of you. And you feel that so strongly. You know you're in Christ, but you feel so guilty before God. You feel so unclean. You feel like you can't come to God. It feels so strong. And here comes Romans saying, there's no condemnation for you. At that moment, in a real sense, your emotions, if they're contradicting faith in God's word, are the stoicheia. And you have to make that choice. Are you going to go with how you're feeling? Ugh! Are you going to walk not by emotion, but by faith? That's what it's about. Faith in Christ. Your emotion at that point is worthless. Weak and worthless. Weak and Your emotion doesn't change reality. It's weak and worthless. It feels so real. You can feel it. But faith is not about feeling it. Faith is about believing what you don't see and sometimes what you don't feel. Faith in Christ. If we turn our primary focus away from faith in Christ and the love that issues from it, we've wasted everything. That's Paul's point at the end here, verse 11. I'm afraid I might have labored over you in vain. If these Galatians really did turn away from faith in Christ and instead law of Moses, rules and regulations, they would prove they never actually had faith in Christ because real faith endures. He said, if that's the case, why have I been working among you? It's all just a waste. May it never be for us at Faith Bible Church. Let's pray together that we may live decently and in order, that God will give us wisdom in the stoicheia, in the structure, in the programs, in how we do things. Let's pray that we excel still more in every facet of that out of love for each other. And at the same time, my prayer for us is that we wouldn't be known by any of that. Don't want to be the church that has a really good sound system. That's not bad. I didn't say that's bad. I don't want to be known as that church. They're the church with those really good programs. I don't want to be known as that church. Is that what we're about? Unbelievers got great, great programs. We're known by this, an unswerving faith in Christ and his finished work that we believe and proclaim and a real generous outgoing love that flows out of that freedom. I want to be known for this, that we are the only place in this world, us and our brothers and sisters in the world, we're the only place in this world where there is real freedom.